Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me coming in in living color. How's it going, Darcy? <laughs> it's going okay. Uh, this is our second time trying to record this. We had some Take technical two. issues <laughs> on both sides. Um, you had some mic issues, and I cracked my computer screen. I cannot believe I did that. Oh my god, just horrific, <sighs> horrifying. Know. We just we did not have good luck yesterday at all, and my microphone for some reason became unplugged during part of the recording session. And then, as we got in and we're recording, we could hear because I live in this house that we well, it's it's a split level duplex right now, and the upstairs tenants were in the basement having a loud conversation and it all came through on the track. <laughs> I could hear like the so, whole thing when I was editing. <laughs> uh, and there's no way to filter that out. Yeah. So you just, it is what it is. You got to stop. And then as I'm trying to figure out how to prevent that from happening, I realized that I have a freaking recording studio in the basement <laughs> of my house. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very large area that they used to do band and recording sessions with guitars. And there's even, you can see, there's guitar hooks on the wall. Oh, yeah. There's guitar hooks on the wall. So clearly they were recording at some point down here. And it's got great acoustic sound. And the only thing is, um, there are boxes everywhere. So... Yeah. Um, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to find even enough space to get a chair down here to sit and record. But then I realized that even with that, this, the boxes are going to provide even more sound control and, and just muffle any kind of echoing noise. Because this is a very large house and all the rooms have hardwood floors and there's just no mm -hmm. um, kind of buffer for the sound. And so you end up with a very echoey, just not a very good sound quality, e even with a good mic. So I was concerned about that, and now it, yeah. I'm hopeful that this is going to be a much better alternative, that we're going to be able to provide you guys with much better sound from here on out. Yeah, and hopefully no technical issues on my end either. I've got, I can't oh believe I did this. I, it was so stupid, and it's going to cost like, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks to fix, but because of the holiday. So what happened? So... You like I was like picking up my computer. We finished recording yesterday, right? And I was like picking up my computer and I was going to take it into the kitchen so I could send you the file while I was cooking dinner. And I went to like close the laptop, but the headphone jack was like in between the laptop and the monitor. Ugh. Or like the keyboard and the screen, you know? And so like I oh opened it and I'm like, <gasps> so yeah, it was. I think we've all done that at some point or another. Like, either broken yeah. our screen or, like, come so devastatingly close to breaking the screen that we were just like, oh, my yeah. God, that was too close for comfort. But I have. I closed a pen mm -hmm. in my laptop um, and was like, what was that crunching sound? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. So, and it's a Mac, so it's going to cost, I don't know, a butt ton to fix. But uh, because of the holiday, I can't get a quote yet. So I'm just kind of working with like 80% of a screen right now. So hopefully it's not affecting the actual computer. Everything seems to be working reasonably okay right now. So we're going to see what we can do. Um, and I do have another computer. So it's not the end of the world, but it's on a laptop. So if this computer has to go into the shop to be fixed, my sound quality is going to be kind of not great. <laughs> so we're going to switch. Uh, so it's just like, it's one thing after another. We've just had some challenges lately and the good thing is we went and looked at another house today 
It's a, a yeah. larger house, and there's plenty of room to create a sound studio in one Ooh. of the upstairs. There's, like, this attic that has, like, a whole, like, five or six bedrooms, and there's, like, quite a bit of space to where I could kind of create um, a recording area, recording oh, studio. Awesome. Yeah. Super that cool. So cool, yeah. Um, but if we can get <laughs> the two of us together <laughs> get a situation where yeah. we're not having some sort of technical difficulties i mean so stupid. who would have thought like it was just so loud that conversation i'm like and i have my headphones yeah. on so you can't necessarily hear right away especially if you're talking and then all of a sudden i'm like what's that noise it just sounded like somebody had turned like my phone you know like when you accidentally mm-hmm. hit something and it plays like a video or whatever I, I thought it was that and I'm like that accidentally hit something that had because it was so loud and like clear I could hear everything mm-hmm. and I take my headphones off and I still hear it and I'm like what is that where's that coming from and I walk out into the hallway and down because this is a let's see I think it's a four-story house so okay. it's like seven thousand square feet or something like that and it's split into two levels and i don't know if it mm-hmm. if it was just a a one story or a, excuse me a one family home at some point and they changed the duplex or if it was a duplex all along but it's a very they're pretty large units and then the mm-hmm. basement is like the whole size of the the house and it's shared by the tenants and evidently the tenants the upstairs tenants because we own the whole house and then we rent out the top part to tenants mm-hmm. and it pretty much pays off the mortgage but um, the tenants that live upstairs were down in the basement doing laundry and the, they were having a cell phone conversation. Oh my gosh. It's a really loud cell phone conversation. And for some reason it was like echoing up through like the pipes or something yeah. <laughs> into, my, into my recording room. And I was just, cause I have this room that's specifically set aside for recording and evidently that wasn't such a good idea. And I didn't even think about this room downstairs, but now yeah. this, and it's nice and cool down here. It's just like it's you don't even have to have the AC on. It's cool cuz of the, it's in the basement and it's underground and much better space. Nice. Yeah, I was but, editing this what we recorded yesterday and I was like, um yeah, so I could like hear that whole conversation on your track. So I think we need to just do another take of this. Yeah. <laughs> so, um uh, we're going to start it off by having a little bit of a conversation about a current event that's going on right now. We did an episode on Jeffrey Epstein at mm-hmm. one point, and it appears that... Want to go ahead and share the current news? Yeah, so on July 2nd, Ghislaine Maxwell, his ex-girlfriend slash friend slash alleged procurer of children so that he could abuse, uh, was finally arrested. Um, she was arrested in New Hampshire, in uh, Bradford, New Hampshire, and she was living on this crazy estate. I was reading this article. It's on the Daily Beast, and it's th- this this whole thing is is crazy because it's like a million dollar estate on over 150 acres, and she paid for this thing in cash. And Do I don't you think know, that's like suspicious at all. <laughs> well, yeah, like I know that like. I, obviously, I don't have the money to pay a million dollars in cash for a house, but like, I think it kind of raises a red flag. Like, it's one thing to be able to afford that and like do whatever, but like, if you offer me cash, it makes it seem like you don't want a paper trail. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I can see with affluent families and people who have a lot of money who want to kind of keep things on the DL so they don't get a lot of extra publicity, so they don't get paparazzi camped outside mm-hmm. of their house. I can, I understand that. 
But in, in this particular instance, she was basically wanted for questioning, right? And trying to yeah. evade questioning, right? Yeah. So as soon as, I think as soon as Jeffrey Epstein went back to prison, they started becoming interested in her and wanting to bring her in for questioning because um, one of the charges she's facing now that she's been arrested is perjury from his, from Jeffrey Epstein's 2014 trial when she claimed to have had nothing to do with it. And then, all, you know, all of the, the now women have come forward and, and said she that was there. She was involved. <laughs> she was all and, yeah, there. And she was all part of the grooming business. and part of the abuse and all of this. So she was wanted for questioning at the very least. And they couldn't find her for the longest time. I mean, she was basically and, like a, a madam or like a, yeah. she was procuring these girls for him, was she not? Or, I mean, it's she, alleged. Yeah, right? that's part of the, the charges. And there's also some of the survivors have said that she was also involved in the abuse. Yeah, so, I've heard that as well. Yeah. And again, you know, we, we will withhold judgment on this until she has a trial of her own. But, I mean, if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about the Jeffrey Epstein episode that we did, it's episode 31. So go check out that episode if you want to hear a little bit more about the story. But I guess what's going on right now is she's now officially in custody Mm -hmm. and going to be questioned. And and then they will determine how they want to go forward with those criminal charges against her and how much potential jail time she's going to get for this. Right. Yeah. And she's facing six charges. Like I said, she's got the perjury charge and then she's also facing charges of procuring these children and abuse and, and, and possibly interstate uh, trafficking, similar to Jeffrey Epstein. I'm not exactly sure on what all the charges are, but the story about this house, this place that she's living is crazy. So like I said, she bought it in cash. Um, and at first they didn't want, she didn't want her name on the, the purchasing documents. And the broker who sold the house said that she actually never met Maxwell and that she um, mostly was contacting with, was in contact with a man who claimed that he had just sold like his tech company and wanted a place in New England and this, that, the other. And they didn't want their names on the, the purchasing documents. And then the seller kind of balked at that, you know, because that's kind of weird. And then they formed an LLC, which, again, is not that uncommon, I think, among, like, the wealthy set. It's, like, a way to protect your assets, I think, you know. Right. Um, but one of the other things that the broker pointed out that was super weird was that they had a lot of questions about the flight patterns over the house, they wanted to know yeah. if there was a lot of like air traffic in the area. Yeah. Drones. Yeah. Yeah. I can see. I mean, it, she knew that they were narrowing mm-hmm. in on her, right? Yeah. I mean, what, what is this space? Talk, talk about the space that she purchased. So it's called Tucked Away. Like, that's the name of it. There's a rock that says Tucked Away when you like enter the property, and it's like a half mile off the side of the road. It's a uh, four bedroom, four bath on top of a long winding driveway. And it, it was last listed in December 2019. So she's only been there for six months. And yeah, the listing described the home as an amazing retreat for a nature lover who wants total privacy, which is probably obviously why uh, she was interested right. in it. And it appears that nobody in the town knew who she was or that she was there or they didn't really know anything. They didn't know anything about this. So... Yeah, so she was kind of living a dream life while she was being wanted by the FBI because uh, she she 
she obviously came from money too. It's not like I mean I know that she had some business dealings and that she did get some money from Jeffrey Epstein. That's been discussed in. Uh, so you you know her history, right? I, I know a little bit of it. Her affluent yeah. history. So essentially, her dad was this big media proprietor, and he was also a member of parliament at oh. one point, a suspected spy and a fraudster. Whoa. They say. So this dude was originally from Czechoslovakia, and he rose from poverty to build this publishing empire. And then after his death, a lot of discrepancies came forward, revealing that he had fraudulently misappropriated a lot of money from Mm. this pension fund that he was supposedly working on. But essentially, he was an Orthodox Jew who escaped from Nazi occupation, joined the Czechoslovak army in exile during World War II. So he's got like this huge, like complex history. And he was decorated after active service in the British army. Then he started working in publishing, setting up Pergamon Press, which was a major publishing house. And after some time, he started getting into diversifying his portfolio and getting other publishing companies. He had a really flamboyant lifestyle, though. He lived in a very affluent area, often flew a helicopter and sailed in a luxury yacht that he named Lady Ghislaine mm-hmm. after his daughter. Um, it was very litigious, uh, a lot of controversy, lawsuits, things like that. Um, and he was also very controversial because he supported Israel at the time of the 1948 mm-hmm. Arab-Israeli war. Um, and then he had to sell his business in 1989 to cover some of his debt. They said he potentially had some gambling issues mm. and was just having some issues because he was essentially pulling money out of this pension fund when he shouldn't have been. And then his body was discovered in 1991 floating in the Atlantic Ocean. And evidently he had fallen overboard from his yacht. And there was all this, you know, had he committed suicide, what happened? Uh, Eventually they determined that he died of a heart attack and drowning, kind of an accidental Mm. combination of those two because he was in the water. Mm -hmm. They said he was potentially, they found him naked. So he was on his yacht, Hmm. like, and he would commonly pee into the water. What? Ew. And... Yeah, and he had a heart attack when he was going out to piss and fell in the water and drowned because he wow. was having a heart attack. But after his death, news kind of came out that he had stolen hundreds of millions of pounds from his company's pension Good funds. Lord. And they essentially filed for bankruptcy in 1992. So there was this huge scandal. And Ghislaine and her whole family ended up just like embroiled in this tremendous scandal. The company went under. I mean, I'm sure they still had a good deal of Mm -hmm. money that was kind of holed away, that they were able to avoid some of that. And so she's lived this affluent lifestyle, but she's kind of flown under the radar because I don't think that sort of the better parts of British society want something to do with someone who was this scandalous, so to speak. So that's, you know, when you have the issue of her running into and associating with Jeffrey Epstein, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I actually, it was funny, I in part of this article, or maybe it was just like a headline I saw or something, but it was like, the federal prosecutors on this case would welcome Prince Andrew coming to talk to them about his involvement. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, right. yeah, good luck trying to get him to... <laughs> that ain't gonna happen. Like, voluntarily come talk to you. Yeah, okay. I Everything, think, guys. you know, there's so many pictures out here of this Ghislaine person with, you know, Clinton and, you know, Trump and all sorts of mm-hmm. political leaders and celebrities and all kinds of things. And now everyone is just like backing up and like, we don't want to have anything mm-hmm. to do with this. We don't know this person. But yet there's clearly photographic evidence that she knew and hung out with a lot of different people. So I think she was somewhat kind of uh, sh- in the shadows 
because of mm-hmm. the the kind of scandal that was that she initially had to deal with in the 90s but i think over time as epstein began to build his wealth and associations he was he kind of put himself in the right positions at the right time to be associated with a lot of different celebrities and very wealthy people yeah, they both ran in those kind of circles. And I don't necessarily think it was because people sought them out. I think that they put themselves in there. And then eventually mm-hmm. people just kind of having this around so much and so often just sort of let them be a regular fixture, right? Yeah, I imagine it's like a small world when you're running with that kind of crowd and you have that kind of money. You go to the same events, you do the same things, you're involved in the same charities this that and the other so and he liked to have fun i think that that was something that i think drew people to him is he liked to party he liked to have fun he liked lots of young beautiful girls around and let's be honest like a lot of people including like trump and prince charles and all sorts of other people i don't know if prince charles was involved but prince andrew i've not heard anything about yeah charles um, but definitely and prince andrew and, and and many other people you know wanted to be around him because he had that sort of a vibe he had the mm-hmm. young pretty girls partying and drinking and having fun and and that's what those sorts of men appreciated being around and still do mm-hmm. Now, they have to be a lot more careful about it, but at that time period, there was really no qualms, no limitations when it came to that party lifestyle. Right. Yeah, at some point, it definitely crossed the line between, like, having a party lifestyle and hiring models and having young women um, around to kind of the seedier aspects of... Raping them. Having children. Yeah. Right. Having children around. So um, I think the girls kept getting younger and younger and younger mm-hmm. and more and more innocent. And the activities went from probably, I'm sure that it, it accelerated from casual touching and massages and then ended up in rape, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. That's what a lot of them are alleging. And they're also saying that, you know, Ghislaine was involved in some of these rapes and would like participate in the grooming aspect uh, of it. Um, I can't even, it just makes me physically ill to think about a woman doing that to another woman. I mean, let alone a man doing it to a woman, like that's gross to me, but like a woman participating in that and sort of doing that to another woman, especially a young woman, knowing full well the damage that she's doing. Mm Because people that do that know that they're doing damage. There's no way in hell they don't know that they're doing damage. Right. How can you not? Yeah. But they just, I think, you know, maybe there was some psychopathic stuff going on where they just, people sometimes they don't have a conscience and they don't acknowledge Mm -hmm. that their actions have consequences for other people that are very detrimental to physical, mental, and emotional well-being. And I think that they may know that they're doing damage to those things, but they just don't have any kind of empathy for the victims. Right. And so they, they don't feel bad about it. They know they're doing damage, but yeah. they don't feel bad. They're just like, okay, it is what it is. I would not at all be surprised if she tried to say she was like coerced or forced or pressured into acting as. Oh, I'm sure. Madam. She's going to have yeah. some excuse. There's no way she's going to come out and acknowledge her part in this and take right. responsibility. People of that affluent lifestyle never do that. There's always a, he did this and this, Mm -hmm. there's never any personal responsibility taken. It's always putting it off on somebody else. There's an excuse. There's somebody else who's responsible for that. And that's part of that psychopathy, like being a Mm -hmm. psychopath. 
You never take responsibility. No matter what happens, somebody else is always at fault and to blame. Especially when he is now dead. Yeah. So, so I'm, you, can say what, I mean, exactly. you can say whatever you want. And my opinion, it's deserved, but she also has some responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, um, second part of the story, unless you have anything else you want to add to that. Nope, I'm good. So this obviously is going to be a mini episode for the week. Why don't you dive into our little midweek tickler of a story? Yeah. This one's a good one. Yeah, so this is another Alabama story, and it's kind of a throwback. So this is from 1991, and it is a kidnapping and ransom story So that is still not resolved. So on uh, September 11th, 1991, 26-year-old Earl Lawson and his wife, 25-year-old Carrie, got a phone call from a woman sometime after midnight saying that Earl's father was gravely ill and that they needed to get to the hospital right away. So they live in Jasper, which is um, like 30 minutes-ish outside of downtown Birmingham. It's kind of like northeast-ish. Okay. And so they immediately, you know, rush out to their carport. But before... Now, was he in poor health already, or was this kind of a surprise? He he had been having some medical issues. Um, I'm not exactly sure how old he was, but I think he... But it does... The article does say that he had been having some medical issues and had been in and out of the hospital. So it was not um, a complete, like, out of nowhere. Yeah. So... They go to the, they immediately go to their car, but before Earl could even turn the ignition, a masked gunman appears and orders them out of the car. He forced Earl to lie down on the ground face down and pulls out some duct tape and tells Carrie to bind his arms with the tape. Then the gunman forces Carrie into their car and flees. And that's the last time Carrie Lawson is ever seen again. Wow. So Carrie came from a wealthy family in Cleveland, Tennessee. This is just east of Chattanooga and had recently graduated from the University of Alabama's law school. Wow. And yeah. And and she had I mean, she was such a recent graduate that she actually had just taken the bar exam, but disappeared without ever finding out that she passed. So I don't know how much time passes between taking the exam and finding out how how that you pass but are finding Usually out how you a couple did. couple of months okay so yeah so just a couple of months you know between the time that she graduated and presumably you know took the bar um, it may have been a little bit longer back then because i think that a lot of it was like not electronic yet okay yeah so i, I took written. the bar in 2001 okay and so we it took um it took us like a month to get our results yeah. back so maybe like three months or so, because everything would have been written by uh, 91-ish, maybe. Yeah. Um, and Carrie and Earl had actually only been married for about a year and a half when she was kidnapped. And like I said, uh, Earl's father had been having some medical issues at the time. And this woman who called claimed to be a nurse at the Walker County Regional Medical Center. And that's the hospital in the Jasper area. So there really wasn't any kind of reason to be super suspicious about so this. So she gave her name and information on the call? She, that's not clear. I it, it kind of sounds like she just said, I'm a nurse at Walker Regional Medical. Um, your father right. is ill and you need to come to the hospital is kind of what it sounds right. like the phone call I mean, was. I, who, who really questions that if that's, Especially you know, the, I don't when think I you're would getting have. that message, yeah. Yeah. So... 
Earl manages to free himself, but because his house keys are with his stolen car, he ends up having to kick in his back door to get into his house, and he calls 911. Right. And immediately, friends and family and both local and federal law enforcement begin investigating, and Carrie's family comes in from Tennessee, and they set up shop at the Lawson house to kind of be able to answer a phone call if a ransom call comes in. Right. And one did almost immediately. So shortly after Carrie's kidnapping, a man contacted Earl demanding $300,000 for Carrie's safe return. And it was almost like the kidnapper was playing games with the Lawsons because he would tell them to go to like location A and answer this payphone, And then he'd call that payphone and tell them to go to location B, like 20 miles down the road. And then kind of nothing would come of it. So he was just kind of like leading them on a chase. Wow. And initially, the kidnapper demanded that Earl's father drop off the money in Coleman. And Coleman is about an hour north of uh, Jasper. So it's like directly north of Birmingham. So um, about an hour and a half north of Birmingham. So these people had to have known a little bit about Carrie and and the family and her family and her marriage. Because how would they have known about the dad and all that kind of stuff, right? Yes. So... There's so little information about this case, and I actually reached out to um, the reporter who wrote this article. I had some questions about this, but I haven't heard back yet. So if I do hear back, you know, we'll fill those gaps in. But yeah, that is one of the questions is that we don't know how they've landed on the Lawsons to Target. There's no, you know, obviously they also knew about Carrie and Carrie's uh, family coming from money. So yeah. But, so, um, they want Earl Sr. to drop off the money in Coleman, but when he goes to the money drop location, there's, like, five police cars in the area responding to a completely unrelated call. But, obviously, the kidnapper doesn't know that the police are there monitoring, you know, he thinks that they're monitoring the money drop. Oh. So, the kidnapper calls and calls the whole thing off. Oh, boy. And this is kind of the start of when this story gets really, really messy in terms of how law enforcement handles this. Like, it's kind of a Keystone Cop situation because the FBI had set up a tape recorder at the Lawson home to record and trace all the phone calls. But on September 12th, just the day after Carrie's kidnapped, when the kidnapper called, the family members demanded to speak to Carrie. But the tape recorder was turned off. So they didn't get any of that. And then the following day, on September 13th, another meeting was set up where Earl Jr., the husband, was going to deliver the money at a gas station just outside of Jasper. So this was going to be closer to home. And for this meeting, the FBI had Earl Jr. wear a directional beeper, and they also placed the second beeper in the bag with the money so that once the bag was dropped off and the money's picked up, the FBI can follow that beeper and see where the money goes, right? Yeah. Well, Earl leaves the money at a payphone and drives away, and the FBI starts following the beeper. But, you see where I'm going with this? Yep. Both the beeper Earl was wearing and the beeper in the money bag were operating on the same frequency. So the FBI was unknowingly following Earl and not the money. That just kind of seems like a rookie mistake. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. So eventually law enforcement does release the recordings that they did get of the ransom demands. 
and they are able to identify the kidnapper as 49-year-old Jerry Bland, who is a former strip mine operator. And if you recall from the Birmingham episode, we talked about how there's a lot of mines in Birmingham for um, all the materials required to make steel. So he was a a former strip mine operator. And they start looking into this Jerry Bland guy. And when they look into his associates, they come across a woman named Karen McPherson. And Hmm. Karen's cousin is Jerry Bland's ex-wife. All right. And then so they search Karen McPherson's home and they find thousands of dollars and she ends up identifying Jerry Bland as Carrie's kidnapper. And she also admitted to being the nurse who called the Lawsons to lure them out of their home. Oh, great. All right. And she says, she tells the authorities that she watched over Carrie for two days after the kidnapping and that the last time she saw her, Carrie was alive. Sure. That's what they all say. Of course. I didn't do anything. She was alive when I left. Exactly. So on September 28th, 1991, about three weeks after Carrie's kidnapped, federal agents go into Jerry Bland's home and property when they search and they find some of the bills belonging to Carrie's ransom in a truck on the property. They match the serial numbers. And they also find a lot of guns in the house. But Mm. they did not arrest him. And according to Carrie's sister, they went in, they searched the house, they questioned him, and they left. And apparently they were staking out his house while they waited on the local officials to come up with an arrest warrant. So the FBI said that... There was no evidence that they had taken her across state lines, so basically they couldn't go in and arrest him, but they could search the property. And then Mm -hmm. they're waiting on, like, Alabama officials or Jasper police to get this warrant, arrest warrant. So they're staking out his house one morning, and at 4.30 a.m., the federal agents reported hearing a single gunshot inside of his house oh lord but even then they don't enter the house they wait until daylight to enter the house which there's also no explanation for why they waited well at i mean least two they hours. could have thought that maybe he booby trapped the house like maybe they needed to make sure that hadn't been done maybe they thought you know he was shooting at the cops when they heard the gunshot i mean there's there could be a whole variety of reasons that i could see potentially sure but he was also in his house with his family his wife and at least one child i'm not sure how many kids he had so it well, seems and as then if he as could well enter to protect the family no um, you could potentially could, but again, an arrest warrant and a search warrant to go into a house are like two different things. Yeah, but it seems two. like if you hear a gunshot, then that's your probable cause, isn't it? Just one gunshot, though. I mean, yeah, I don't know. That, that I don't know. That's a sticky one. Yeah. Either way, they do not go into the house until a couple hours later where they find Jerry Bland dead from what's going to be ruled a self-inflicted gunshot. And where was his family? I mean, do they not know? Like, I, I, this is weird. There's, the, see, that's also not mentioned in the article. It's, I mean, I don't, it makes it sound like his family's just chilling in the house after he commits suicide. Good Lord. Or maybe they're involved somehow because Carrie's family doesn't quite believe he committed suicide. They don't really know what happened, but they have questions about it. Yeah. 
I would too. <laughs> and he he does leave a suicide note though, and he indicates that the ransom money is in his attic. And or his wallet? The full <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Or his wallet, yesterday. depending on which recording of this you're listening yesterday to. Yesterday when we recorded this episode, D- Darcy misspoke and said that he had the ransom money, the $200,000 worth of ransom money in his wallet. Yeah. And I was like, let's keep that in the episode. <laughs> just uh, was like, yeah. oh, that's Sometimes, a big wallet. Like, I'm reading something in my brain. My mouth doesn't say what my brain is reading. And I, like, I don't hear it. Like people usually have to point it out to me. It's super weird. But anyway, yeah, I think we all do um, that at some point or another. So the, the details of his suicide note have never been made public, but authorities have said that he makes no mention of Carrie's whereabouts. But he does say and that, about, here's the money. Like, I have the money. It's in the attic. Yeah. Which is so freaking yeah. stupid to me. Like, hide the money. Put it in your... Bury it in your yard. Like, do something with it. Don't leave it yeah. in your attic. You think the police are not going to search your attic? Like, what the hell's wrong with you? Well, even if they are going to search your attic, like, you're just leading them to it. Oh, by the way, here's the money. Yeah, just stupid. Yeah, so hinky, right? So Karen McPherson, um, her family has talked to um, the reporters and they have kind of offered what they think happened as far as how she got involved. And she, so Karen in 91 was a truck driver and she was married and had a 12 year old daughter but she also struggled with substance abuse like a lot of her siblings and her mother has said that karen's father was very verbally abusive particularly toward her and her siblings attribute her poor taste in men and her ability to be manipulated to her dysfunctional relationship with her father right it's not Uh, a it's not a news story and Jerry Bland, who had previously been a successful strip mine operator, had recently fallen on hard times and was desperate for money to help pay for his increasing cocaine addiction. You know, it's the 90s. That was a thing. Right. Especially in the early 90s because the late 80s was just, just, I think the late 80s just survived on cocaine. So this next part, like, I don't have a way that this ties into the story other than just to provide you the information because it's literally just put in here and there's just no other... I don't know how to explain it. So the only connection that they seem to have between, like, Jerry Bland and Karen McPherson to the Lawsons and sort of planning this kidnapping is a cassette tape that was found at an apartment complex and this cassette tape was found by a little kid who hands it over to his dad. The dad hands it to the police, and they identify Bland and McPherson talking. So, But they're not talking about the Lawsons. They recorded their conversation on a cassette tape. Why? I guess. Or maybe it was like, I don't, I don't know. Like, How weird. I don't know. Here's all my crimes. Yeah. So, uh, But they're not talking about the Lawsons. They're talking about kidnapping a prominent Jasper businessman. What? And law enforcement kind of believes that this explains their motivations, but there's been no information provided on why Carrie was chosen after the kidnapping of the businessman fell through. Yeah. So they're just saying, like, this is proof that these people wanted to kidnap somebody, but they don't, like, there's no information of how the Lawsons were targeted after that. Right. So I don't know how to explain that. That's just part of the story. And this cassette tape was found. So... 
Karen's brother has stated that while he doesn't know what happened to make Karen get involved, he has heard that Jerry Bland put a gun in her face and said that if she didn't go along with it, that somebody in her family would be killed. Hearsay. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, after Jerry Bland's suicide, Karen McPherson is arrested on first-degree kidnapping charges, and she basically pleads guilty, like, immediately. She pleaded guilty in November of 91. Yeah, there's a freaking cassette so tape. Just, <laughs> yeah, so this is just Hello. two months after the kidnapping. So, she's sentenced to life in prison, and Carrie's and Earl's families both have signed agreements with her that if she will meet with them and tell them everything she knows about Carrie's kidnapping, they will not oppose parole after 10 years. Okay. All right. So she had life and, in prison with parole, with possibility yes. of parole. Okay. Yes. And they're saying, if you tell us what happens, we are not going to get in front of the parole board and oppose your parole after 10 years. We'll support your parole. Okay. So, but part of this deal is she has to agree to a polygraph, hypnosis, and voice analysis. Hmm. Okay, that seems and, weird since none of that is admissible in court. Right, but I think it's more like the family trying to find out what happened, and they're saying, if you do all of this for us, we'll stand behind you at, at your parole hearing. Okay, got so, it. So, Carrie's father actually does meet with McPherson in prison and talks with her for about four or five hours. After this meeting, Karen's family set, and attorney said that she passed the polygraph but when the voice analyst heard the recordings, they basically said she's lying about everything she said. Hmm. None of it is true. Okay. And and it doesn't seem like the polygraph was released to Carrie's family. So it, that's just, you know, maybe just what they what her, Karen's family are saying. Okay. So in 94, she's going to attempt to withdraw her guilty plea and argue that she had an effective counsel. Right? As so they always the do. That's yeah. like the common thing to do in those cases right and she claims that there was an implied threat to take her children and arrest her husband if she didn't plead guilty Hmm. and that she didn't understand the consequences of her plea and according to the investigators what the investigators have told carrie lawson's family karen spent a lot of time alone with carrie between the time that she was kidnapped and when they believed she was murdered yeah and Karen's family claims that she actually did try to release Carrie, but Carrie wouldn't leave because she was in an unfamiliar area and was afraid of the woods. Get the fuck out. For real. Seriously. (laughs) That's That's a bunch of bull. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And they also claim that after the first money drop fell through, that Jerry Bland told Karen to leave. It was over. He's going to return Carrie to her family and he's going to leave town. And they claim that this is the last thing that Karen ever heard Jerry Bland say about it. Right. And Karen McPherson is still in prison, and she was last denied parole in 2016, and her next parole hearing is in 2021. I don't understand why she wouldn't just spill the beans. Who's she protecting? He's dead. I don't know. Her family argues that she doesn't know anything, Uh, and that's why she can't say anything. uh, I, I I I don't buy it. I can see the possibility that maybe he didn't, tell her on purpose because he didn't want her to Mm -hmm. have the information to use against him possibly Mm -hmm. but i mean that's just a stretch i mean how could you not know i mean i guess it's possible but still seems very kind of 
Yeah. And the fact that she sat down with Carrie's father, who's just desperate to find his daughter. They assume she's dead. And he's just desperate to find her and give her a funeral. And she just lies to him for five hours. You know? That's gross. That's just so, gross. In 1996, investigators hire a construction crew to pump out a pool at a closed mine in Tuscaloosa County. And this is like at, at least an hour, maybe even further south of Jasper. So like this is completely different areas of the state now. And they also searched Lake Tuscaloosa on a tip. But wait, so they 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 did they searched that pool area thinking that there was a tip that some her body maybe was So it there? doesn't say there's a tip about the mine, but it does say there's a tip about Lake Tuscaloosa, and that's all in the same area. So somebody called in and said, "Hey, go check mm-hmm. there. Her body's yeah. there." And so they searched this lake, they searched this mine or this pool on this at this mine, but they don't find anything in either location. And Carrie's mother has since passed away, but as of the article that I read, um, as of that most recent update in 2019, her father is still alive and he's still funding searches to find her remains and still responds to tips about Carrie's whereabouts. And he's also still fighting against Karen McPherson's parole. Oh. So Carrie was declared dead two years after her disappearance in 1993. And her family last met with FBI agents in 2000 to plead with them to reopen the investigation, but were told that all the leads had been exhausted. And Hmm. her husband, Earl, has since moved into Birmingham. He's remarried. He has three kids, and he continues to work as an attorney. But the family is still searching for information that will lead them to Carrie's remains. I don't know. This is a tricky one because, like, I feel like in so many of these instances, later it comes out that the dude was involved in some way. The husband. Yeah. Like they maybe have he just never didn't want around anymore. Like it's just I don't know. I Law know enforcement has never even come close to speculating about that. Um there was nothing in the suicide. I mean, that seems like it would be something that Karen could use if right. she wanted to get out of prison. You know, but I don't I mean, know. Maybe she didn't know. I can't I just have a hard time believing she would stay in prison. And be know. like, I don't know anything if she did really know something. I, I mean, most people would turn and tell. Well, I, I think most people wouldn't get involved in this, you know? Right. So, like, trying to add logic to a completely illogical scenario. I don't know. Like, I to me, I, I, I see why it's believable that she doesn't actually know anything. But then she's, I don't, I just don't understand why she would lie to Carrie's dad like that. I don't I understand don't that. So some there was game. Yeah. So there was a $100,000 reward for information leading to Carrie's remains, but I'm not sure if that is still active given how long it long ago this happened. Um, But if anybody out there does happen to have any information about where Carrie Lawson's remains might be or any information about the case, contact Jasper police or Birmingham police or the FBI or, or somebody, but it just, What's really frustrating is how many opportunities there were to follow the money and either find her before he she was killed or find her remain. You know what I mean? Like the beeper yeah. thing is just infuriating. Yeah, for real. So, but that's the kidnapping of Carrie Lawson. Hmm. Interesting case. Yeah. Um, it should probably show up in some random place, like many, many years after, or some genetic 
thing will come forward. Yeah. Like genetic genome testing proves that, you know, so-and-so was the killer and the body is now identified. I, mm-hmm. I bet it'll just be some random thing or it just could be one of those cases that never gets solved, which is truly sad and very yeah. distressing for the family who just wants to, you know, know where their daughter's body is so they can lay her to rest properly. Yeah. And if he still had access to some of the mines where he worked, I mean, they wouldn't, they'll never find her body if she's down yeah. with those mine shafts, you know? Which is scary. Mm-hmm. So, yep. All right. This is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. Darcy, social media. Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on the Twitter and Instagram, and we will post our references, our links, our pictures, and everything there. Awesome. All right, folks, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.